This is Jack Harity, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the May 12, 2023 issue of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Heading. Asylum seekers are prey for gangs and officials. Subheading. Migrants deported by the United States to Mexico face criminal horrors and an asylum system where cases linger for years without resolution. By Maria Abi Habib. As the United States begins imposing border rules making it more difficult for migrants to claim asylum, many will most likely face swift deportation to Mexico, where they will be vulnerable to criminal groups and corrupt officials, according to human rights groups. Mexico's role as Washington's enforcement arm to deter migrants from heading illegally to the United States through Mexican territory will become more significant with the lifting on Thursday of a COVID-era policy known as Title 42, which halted the entry of many migrants at the border and allowed the U.S. authorities to rapidly expel them. In talks last week with the Biden administration, Mexico said it would accept non-Mexican migrants sent back from the United States under new rules and would process them for Mexican asylum. But if the asylum system in the United States is plagued by backlogs, the situation in Mexico is just as bad, with asylum cases lingering for years without resolution. And many migrants expelled to Mexican cities along the U.S. border face daily horrors at the hands of criminal organizations and, in some cases, the same government agencies that Washington is leaning on to help stanch the flow of migrants at the border, according to human rights groups. Since President Biden took office in January 2021, there have been nearly 13,500 attacks against people deported to Mexico from the United States or blocked from crossing the border, according to a recent report from Human Rights First, an advocacy group. The report said that, in some cases, Mexican officials have colluded with criminal organizations to extort migrants. Mexico's National Migration Institute and a foreign ministry did not respond to requests for comment about the government's treatment of migrants. Quote, this country is not a safe country, end quote. Yuri Hurtado, a 26-year-old Colombian migrant, said of Mexico. She left her country in March with six members of her family to escape poverty and violence. She spends her days at a migrant shelter near the U.S. border, listening to threatening phone messages from members of a criminal group who, Ms. Hurtado said, kidnapped her relatives last week while they were riding a bus through Mexico. The shelter where Ms. Hurtado is staying, Casa Migrante San Juan Diego, is in Matamoros, a northern Mexican city that is notorious for violence and across the border from Brownsville, Texas. Ms. Hurtado said the criminal group holding her two sisters, a brother-in-law, and two nephews, who are two and five, had demanded she pay $4,000 for their release or it would start harvesting their organs. The sum is more than Ms. Hurtado said she could ever afford. The local police, she said, did not help her when she tried to file a report, a typical response by the authorities, according to migrant rights groups. Quote, it gives me so much fear what happens on the border, and, yet, also I am full of fear, I will die alone on the border, end quote, she said, adding that she hoped her relatives would be released before she tried to cross the border. Stories like Ms. Hurtado's are not unusual. 
criminal groups often impose fees on migrants to travel through Mexico and then kidnap them. More than 2,000 migrants were kidnapped by criminal organizations last year, the Mexican government said last week. At the same time, migrants are also vulnerable to being victimized by Mexico's migration authorities. Quote, the abuses by state officials themselves is systemic, end quote, said Julia Neusner, a lawyer who co-wrote the Human Rights First report. Quote, we heard hundreds and hundreds of stories from people who experience harm directly at the hands of these state officers, including kidnappings, rape, sexual assault, robbery, extortion, end quote. When President Andreas Manuel Lopez Obrador took office at the end of 2018, he vowed that Mexico would never be used as a cudgel to, quote, do the dirty work, end quote, of Washington's migration policy. Instead, his government issued more visas to allow migrants to travel freely to Mexico and make their way to the U.S. border. But Mr. Lopez Obrador soon discovered, like other Mexican presidents before him, that it is nearly impossible for Mexico to forge a migration policy on its own. By June 2019, President Donald J. Trump was threatening to slap tariffs on Mexico unless Mr. Lopez Obrador clamped down on the thousands of migrants using Mexican humanitarian visas to head to the United States. Mr. Lopez Obrador acted swiftly, deploying thousands of troops to Mexico's northern and southern borders to prevent migrants from entering the country or traveling easily to the United States. The Mexican National Guard, a militarized police force, was given the authority to detain migrants, a power that had been largely concentrated in the hands of migration officials. Quote, the U.S. migration policy has mobilized the Mexican government for enforcement, end quote, Ms. Neusner said. Quote, it is exporting our own border enforcement, end quote. The closing of legal routes within Mexico and pathways to the United States forced more migrants into the hands of ruthless smugglers, rights group said. Mexico's closer alignment with the United States on enforcement has also led to a shift in the government's attitude toward migrants, some analysts said. Quote, the priority is no longer that of human rights and development and protection, as we started out, but due to pressure from the United States, containment, detentions, and expulsions were prioritized, end quote, said Tonatua Guyen, who is the first commissioner of Mexico's National Migration Institute under Mr. Lopez Obrador, until he was replaced by the former head of Mexico's federal prison system. Quote, Deploying the armed forces as your main migration enforcement tool sends a message both to migrants, asylum seekers, and to society that migrants are a threat and they should be treated as a security issue, like an invasion, end quote, said Stephanie Brewer, the Mexico director at the Washington Office on Latin America, a research institute. Quote, that undermines and weakens protections for their physical safety, end quote, she said. At the Casa Migrante San Juan Diego shelter in Matamoros, half a dozen migrants said this week that either they or a family member had been kidnapped in recent days. They were afraid to venture out of the shelter after dark, fearing the criminal groups that stalk the streets. The shelter's director, Jose Luis Elias Rodriguez, said he and his employees had themselves been threatened by criminal groups. But he vowed to keep helping migrants. Quote, if we leave, 
who helps immigrants, end quote, he asked. Quote, who lends a hand if we leave? Who raises it if we leave? Who stands up for them if we leave? End quote. Heading. Daniel Penny appears in court to face charges in killing of Jordan Neely. Subheading. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office has charged Mr. Penny with second-degree manslaughter for choking Mr. Neely, a homeless man, to death on the subway. By Harubi Mecco and Jonah E. Bromwich. Daniel Penny, the man who choked and killed Jordan Neely on the subway last week, was arraigned in Manhattan Criminal Court on Friday on a charge of second-degree manslaughter, taking his first formal steps as a defendant in a case that has riveted New York City. Mr. Penny, handcuffed and dressed in a dark gray suit and a white dress shirt, stood straight and still before the judge, Kevin McGrath. He did not enter a plea to the charge, as he has yet to be indicted by a grand jury, and was released after posting bail. Prosecutors also asked that he surrender his passport within 48 hours. Mr. Penny, a 24-year-old Marine Corps veteran, did not speak, other than responding affirmatively to the judge's procedural questions, saying that he understood when he was next to appear. His lawyer, Thomas Keniff, revealed some information about his client, about whom little has been disclosed, saying that the native New Yorker is enrolled in college and studying architecture, and listing his military accomplishments. In a statement, the Manhattan District Attorney, Alvin L. Bragg, said that his office had determined there was probable cause to arrest Mr. Penny after numerous witness interviews, a review of photos and video footage, and discussions with the medical examiner's office, which determined that Mr. Neely's cause of death was homicide. Quote, Jordan Neely should still be alive today, and my thoughts continue to be with his family and loved ones as they mourn his loss during this extremely painful time, end quote, Mr. Bragg said. Earlier on Friday, Mr. Penny had surrendered to the police, arriving at the 5th Precinct around 8 a.m. He was led out of the building two and a half hours later, his hands cuffed behind his back, and put into a black police car waiting to take him to Manhattan Criminal Court. On May 1st, Mr. Penny encountered Mr. Neely, 30, on an F train and held him in a chokehold for several minutes, killing him. Witnesses said that Mr. Neely, who had a history of mental illness, was acting in a, quote, hostile and erratic manner, end quote, toward other passengers, according to the police. But there was no indication that he physically attacked anyone before Mr. Penny began choking him. Joshua Steinglass, the prosecutor leading the investigation, said during the arraignment that interviews, 911 calls, and other information showed that Mr. Neely had boarded the northbound F train at the 2nd Avenue station. Quote, several witnesses observed Mr. Neely making threats and scaring passengers, end quote, Mr. Steinglass said. Mr. Penny approached Mr. Neely, quote, placed him in a chokehold, taking him to the ground, end quote, and continued to hold him there, quote, for several minutes, end quote, Mr. Steinglass said. The struggle was captured in a four-minute video that showed Mr. Penny continue to choke Mr. Neely for 50 seconds after Mr. Neely had stopped moving. The police interviewed Mr. Penny that night, but released him without charging him. A week and a half later, on Thursday, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office confirmed that it planned to charge Mr. Penny in the killing. 
Mr. Penny's lawyers, Stephen M. Razor and Mr. Kenneth, said in a statement on Thursday that they were, quote, confident that once all the facts and circumstances surrounding this tragic incident are brought to bear, Mr. Penny will be fully absolved of any wrongdoing, end quote. In the days after Mr. Neely's killing, many city leaders, politicians, and advocates for New Yorkers struggling with mental illness and homelessness had called for Mr. Penny's immediate arrest. They said Mr. Neely's killing highlighted the city's failure to care for its most vulnerable and marginalized residents. Advocates from some Democratic politicians had also criticized Mayor Eric Adams for his muted initial response to the killing. Days later, on Wednesday, the mayor said that Mr. Neely's, quote, life mattered, end quote, and that his death was a, quote, tragedy that never should have happened, end quote. In a statement on Thursday, after the district attorney's office said it planned to charge Mr. Penny, Mr. Adams said, quote, I have the utmost faith in the judicial process, and now justice can move forward against Daniel Penny, end quote. Mr. Neely, who had been a subway performer known for his impersonation of Michael Jackson, in recent years appears to have experienced severe mental illness. He had hundreds of encounters with workers who try to help homeless people on the subways, according to an employee of the Bowery Residence Committee, a nonprofit that has a city contract to do that work. He was on the city's so-called Top 50 list, a roster of the homeless people whom officials consider most urgently in need of assistance and treatment. Mr. Neely had racked up more than three dozen arrests, many for minor crimes like turnstile jumping or trespassing, but at least four were on charges of punching people, two of them in the subway system. But his fellow passengers on May 1st would have had no knowledge of his past. Juan Alberto Vasquez, a freelance journalist who recorded the video that captured what happened inside the subway car, recalled that Mr. Neely said, quote, I don't mind going to jail and getting life in prison, end quote, and, quote, I'm ready to die, end quote. By the time the train stopped at Broadway Lafayette, where it remained, Mr. Penny had pinned Mr. Neely on the ground in a chokehold, as two other men grabbed his arms and legs. Mr. Vasquez said he had not seen Mr. Penny grab Mr. Neely, but that he had heard a thump and had then seen both men on the floor. The police said they had received a call at 2.27 p.m. about a fight on an F train at the station. Mr. Neely was taken to Lenox Health Hospital in Greenwich Village, where he was pronounced dead. Two days later, the medical examiner's office issued its homicide ruling and said that the cause of Mr. Neely's death was compression of his neck. Charges did not come until this week. Over his tenure as district attorney, Mr. Bragg has often taken time to deliberate over legal matters before acting. But last summer, the office did act quickly, charging a bodega clerk who fatally stabbed an attacker with murder, only to drop the charge after weeks of outcry. That case, which played out publicly, may in part have informed the office's caution in regard to Mr. Penny. As news of Mr. Penny's charges reverberated on Thursday, Mark H. Morial, the National Urban League president and chief executive officer, said in a statement that the district attorney's decision to charge him, quote, reminds us that a measured response to this shocking episode was necessary, end quote. Quote, while not always swift, a methodical approach to justice in this case bends towards the fair application of the rule of law, end quote, he said. 
left-leaning politicians have led a chorus of criticism over how prosecutors and the mayor responded after the killing, which some have called a murder and others a lynching. Quote, the system is doing what it's designed to do, which is to demonize black men, end quote, Councilwoman Althea Stevens said Thursday before the charges were known. Quote, until we acknowledge that, nothing is going to change, end quote. The charge of second-degree manslaughter, also known as reckless homicide, will require prosecutors to prove that Mr. Penny caused Mr. Neely's death and did so recklessly, meaning that he knew that the chokehold could kill Mr. Neely. If Mr. Penny is convicted, he could spend up to 15 years in prison. In a murder case, prosecutors would likely have to show that Mr. Penny had intended to cause Mr. Neely's death or acted with, quote, depraved indifference, end quote, which might have been a difficult standard to meet. Mr. Penny's lawyers will most likely argue that the force he used against Mr. Neely was justified, given the threat that he believed Mr. Neely posed. Prosecutors will have to prove that Mr. Penny used deadly force without having believed that Mr. Neely was doing the same, or was about to. While a grand jury will continue to hear evidence, Mr. Penny's surrender makes it clear that the investigation had turned up enough that prosecutors felt comfortable charging him before the jurors made a decision. However, the office still must secure a grand jury indictment to proceed with a felony case against Mr. Penny, who grew up on Long Island and has no criminal record. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Heading. Elon Musk appoints Linda Yaccarino Twitter's new chief. Subheading. Mr. Musk said Ms. Yaccarino would focus on business operations and he would work on product design and technology at the social media platform. By Tiffany Tsu, Sapna Maheshwari, Benjamin Mullen, and Ryan Mack. Linda Yaccarino, NBC Universal's advertising chief, was preparing to interview Elon Musk, Twitter's owner, on stage at a conference last month when she received an email from a peer in the advertising industry. Rob Norman, a former executive at the ad giant WPP, wanted to know if Ms. Yaccarino had seen the op-ed he wrote after Mr. Musk bought Twitter last year. Mr. Norman's column discussed the tech billionaire's amplification of misinformation on Twitter and its chilling effect on advertisers. Ms. Yaccarino said that she had, and that she planned to raise such concerns, Mr. Norman said. But the main focus of her talk with Mr. Musk would be on something else, his efforts to revamp the social network into Twitter 2.0. Now Ms. Yaccarino is set to become the face of Twitter 2.0. Mr. Musk said on Friday that he had selected Ms. Yaccarino, 60, to become the company's chief executive. Hours earlier, NBC Universal announced that Ms. Yaccarino was leaving, effective immediately. Quote, I am excited to welcome Linda Yaccarino as the new CEO of Twitter. End quote, Mr. Musk tweeted. He said she would mainly handle business operations while he would continue working on product design and technology. In choosing Ms. Yaccarino, Mr. Musk is signaling what his priority is at Twitter, its advertising business, rather than social media know-how. Ms. Yaccarino has been one of Madison Avenue's power brokers for decades, and Twitter, which makes the bulk of its revenue from ads, has struggled to expand that business, especially after Mr. Musk spooked advertisers last year. Quote, 
Linda's a force, end quote, said Joe Marchese, the former head of ad sales at the Fox Networks Group, who had known Miss Yaccarino for at least a decade. Quote, she has one of the biggest jobs in advertising, and the ad market is as hard as it's ever been, end quote. Yet Ms. Yaccarino will have to do more than contend with Twitter's advertising woes. The company, which is based in San Francisco, has been severely slimmed down since Mr. Musk slashed 75% of its workforce and has grappled with gaps in expertise and technical glitches. Twitter is also weighed down by $13 billion in debt that it took on to enable Mr. Musk to buy the company. Most significantly, Ms. Yaccarino would have to deal with a mercurial and unpredictable boss in Mr. Musk. The 51-year-old billionaire has a track record of firing executives who don't achieve his goals. He sometimes tweets news about his various companies, which also include the electric car maker Tesla, without warning. And as Twitter's owner, Mr. Musk retains absolute power at the company. Mr. Musk already upended Ms. Yaccarino's carefully laid plans when he tweeted on Thursday that he had selected a new Twitter chief, though he did not identify her. Ms. Yaccarino, who was in back-to-back -back rehearsals for NBC's annual pitch to major advertisers when the tweet went out, hadn't informed many of her fellow executives that she was planning to leave, four people with knowledge of the matter said. Lou Pascalis, a longtime ad executive and friend of Ms. Yaccarino, likened her move to Twitter to taking a, quote, step into the lion's mouth, end quote. Quote, with her stature in the industry as probably one of the most beloved and trusted people on the revenue side, I question why she would subject herself to that kind of potential reputational risk, end quote, he said. Mr. Musk and Ms. Yaccarino may be betting that there is plenty of upside with Twitter 2.0. Mr. Musk has laid out ambitious plans for the company, telling employees that it could be worth $250 billion one day and that the platform can be an everything app with features like payments. Parentheses, he recently said that Twitter is worth $20 billion, down from the $44 billion that he paid for it. End parentheses. Ms. Yaccarino has already been working on her priorities at Twitter. One person who has spoken with her in recent days said that she is focusing on repairing the company's relationship with Madison Avenue and wooing media companies back to the platform, potentially with partnership deals. And she and Mr. Musk appear aligned on political issues, such as a more permissive approach towards speech on Twitter, that are central to his vision for the platform, two people familiar with her views said. She is a conservative and a critic of so-called woke discourse, a term used by conservatives to describe elements of left-wing social progressivism as they view as censorious, they said. Former President Donald J. Trump twice appointed Ms. Yaccarino to two-year terms on the President's Council on Sports, Fitness, and Nutrition, where she joined would-be Republican politicians such as Mehmet Oz, the celebrity physician. Ms. Yaccarino, who did not return requests for comments, grew up with working-class Italian parents in Long Island, New York, including a father who was a police officer. She attended Catholic school. After graduating from Pennsylvania State University in 1985 with a telecommunications degree, she spent nearly 20 years at Turner Entertainment, becoming chief operating officer of advertising sales, marketing, and acquisitions before leaving for NBC Universal in 2011. 
At Turner and NBC Universal, Ms. Yaccarino, who has been said to negotiate like a velvet hammer, has made a name for herself by helping traditional television hold its ground in advertising in the era of Facebook and Google. Each year, she strode on stage at Radio City Music Hall for the upfront presentations, the glizzy showcases used by television networks to woo Madison Avenue, to persuade marketers to pay a hefty premium over social media rates to advertise on shows like This Is Us and Saturday Night Live. But while Miss Yaccarino has spent years defending TV ad dollars from tech companies and has been a fierce critic of Facebook and YouTube, she has also struck partnerships with apps like Snapchat and TikTok and digital outlets like BuzzFeed. Outside work, Ms. Yaccarino became heavily involved in initiatives including the World Economic Forum's Task Force on Future of Work, which she heads. She was also a chair on the board of the Ad Council, a nonprofit group, and helped the group raise $60 million in three months early in the pandemic to help counter vaccine hesitancy making private calls, sending notes, and, quote, working every lever that she had, end quote, said Lisa Sherman, the council's chief executive. It's unclear when Ms. Yaccarino met Mr. Musk, but they publicly interacted on stage at the media conference last month at the ritzy Fontainebleau Miami Beach Hotel in Florida. Ms. Yaccarino had previously expressed admiration for Twitter, calling the platform the single number one biggest content distribution partner for NBC Universal at an ad industry event soon after Mr. Musk took over the company. At the time, she added that she did not plan to bet against him and that she believed he could learn advertising. Quote, I think we can teach him, end quote, she said. This week, Ms. Yaccarino was in attendance when Mr. Musk spoke at an advertising conference in California's Napa Valley hosted by WPP, three people familiar with the event said. Ms. Yaccarino would be a rare female chief executive in technology, as top executives like Meta's Sheryl Sandberg and YouTube's Susan Wojcicki have recently left their roles. Throughout her career, Ms. Yaccarino has often said that she has been the only woman at the table and has described incidents of bias such as the time a male supervisor complained in an otherwise flattering performance review about her aggressiveness. Quote, I only wish she would stop using her high heels as a weapon, end quote. While Ms. Yaccarino is active on Twitter, her habits are sedate compared to Mr. Musk's, though in recent weeks, she has liked dozens of posts by and about him. Still, the differences between Mr. Musk and Ms. Yaccarino were clear last month at the media conference in Miami. A polished Ms. Yaccarino came with prepared comments. An unshaven Mr. Musk spent a few moments wrangling his toddler son, XAEA12, before joining her and offering sometimes halting answers to her questions. Ms. Yaccarino returned repeatedly to worries that her industry colleagues have voiced since Mr. Musk took control of Twitter, emphasizing several times that the audience of ad executives was crucial to the company's financial success. Mr. Musk said that, quote, there's legitimate concerns that advertisers have that I want to hear, end quote. He recounted a complaint he had heard from David Zaslav, the chief executive of Warner Bros. Discovery, who is frustrated that he was unable to place ads for White Lotus, the hit HBO show, next to discussions of White Lotus on Twitter. 
The issue has since been fixed, Mr. Musk said. Ms. Yaccarino answered, quote, so it's a new beginning, end quote. Heading, U.S. faces significant risk of running out of cash in June, budget office warns. Subheading, a default would cause financial distress, economic disruptions, and rapid increases in borrowing rates, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office said. By Alan Rappaport, the Congressional Budget Office said on Friday that there was a significant risk that the federal government could run out of cash sometime in the first two weeks of June, setting the United States up for a default. The warning came as the White House and congressional leaders spent the week in negotiations over how to raise the $31.4 trillion borrowing cap. The Treasury Department has been using extraordinary measures to keep paying the country's bills without breaching the debt ceiling, which was officially breached on January 19th. But the department said that those tools could be exhausted as soon as June 1st. The nonpartisan budget office outlined the fiscal strain facing the government as the legislative standoff continues. It also noted that the timing and revenue coming into the government, as well as its expenditures, were hard to predict. Quote, if the debt limit is not raised or suspended before the Treasury's cash and extraordinary measures are exhausted, the government will have to delay making payments for some activities, default on its debt obligations, or both, end quote, the Congressional Budget Office said in a report released on Friday. It predicted that a default would lead to, quote, distress in credit markets, disruptions in economic activity, and rapid increases in borrowing rates for the Treasury. End quote. Treasury Secretary Janet L. Yellen warned this week that the consequences of a default would be dire. Quote, a default would threaten the gains that we've worked so hard to make over the past few years in our pandemic recovery, end quote, she said at a news conference in Japan on Thursday before a gathering of group of seven finance ministers. Quote, and it would spark a global downturn that would set us back much further, end quote. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The day that the United States runs out of cash, known as the X date, could come later this summer. The Budget Office said that if the Treasury Department had sufficient funds to make it through June 15th, an influx of quarterly tax receipts and additional extraordinary measures at its disposal would most likely allow the government to keep paying its bills through at least the end of July. President Biden and the four top congressional leaders, including Speaker Kevin McCarthy, were originally scheduled to meet again on Friday to discuss the debt limit after an initial face-to-face -face session on Tuesday produced no agreement. The second meeting is now expected to take place next week, before Mr. Biden departs on Wednesday for Japan to attend the G7 leaders meeting. In the interim, staff from both sides are continuing to try to reach some type of deal to avert a default. While the decision to delay the meeting was viewed as a positive development that could allow both sides to reach consensus, it remains unclear whether an agreement can be reached in time. Mr. McCarthy has insisted on deep spending cuts and a rollback of Mr. Biden's clean energy agenda as a prerequisite to raising the debt limit. The president has insisted that Republicans raise the borrowing cap, arguing that it simply allows the United States to pay bills that Congress has already approved. Karine Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, 
said on Friday that the meeting was delayed so that the administration and congressional staff could continue their private discussions over a plan to raise the debt limit. While the White House continued to insist that raising it is not negotiable, she said, the president was willing to discuss other spending and budget matters with Republicans. Quote, the meetings have been productive over the last few days, end quote, Ms. Jean-Pierre said, adding that there was a lot of urgency to find a solution that prevents a default. The nation's long-term fiscal outlook continues to be a problematic and could only harden the Republican position that the government must rein in spending. In a separate report released on Friday, the Congressional Budget Office said it projected a federal budget deficit of $1.5 trillion this year, slightly higher than its forecast in February. Annual deficits are projected to nearly double over the next decade, totaling more than $20 trillion through 2033. Heading. FDA Approves New Drug to Treat Hot Flashes by Christina Jewett The Food and Drug Administration on Friday approved the first non-hormonal medication to treat hot flashes in menopausal women, offering a potential remedy for the symptoms of overheating of the upper body and sweating that can be disruptive to daily life for years. The drug, to be marketed as Vioza, is the first to target a neuron in the brain that becomes unbalanced as estrogen levels fall. It would typically be prescribed for women in their 50s during the menopausal phase estimated to last seven years, according to Marcy English, a vice president of Estella's Pharma, the maker of the medication. The agency said the drug was cleared for moderate to severe symptoms. Hot flashes are the most common side effect of menopause for which many women typically seek treatment, Estella said and the complaints of those who experience severe hot flashes and other symptoms of menopause are often dismissed in the workplace and elsewhere. Quote, it's distracting, end quote, Ms. English said. Quote, it's uncomfortable. It's something that we kind of managed in silence, end quote. In year-long studies, the drug was found to be effective and generally safe, with side effects including stomach pain, diarrhea, and insomnia, according to the FDA. Because signs of liver damage emerged in some patients during study of the drug, the FDA said patients should have blood work conducted before starting the medication to test for existing liver problems and should then repeat the test during the first nine months of taking the drug. Quote, patients experiencing symptoms related to liver damage, such as nausea, vomiting, or yellowing of the skin and eyes, should contact a physician, end quote, the FDA statement says. Estella said that the drug would cost $550 for a 30-day supply, not including rebates. The company said it would begin a support program, quote, to help patients access the medication they were prescribed, end quote. The Institute for Clinical and Economic Review advised a lower price of $2,000 to $2,600 per year. Ms. English said Estella's was prepared to have the medication in pharmacies within three weeks of approval. Heading. Olympic Swimming in the Seine, How Paris is Remaking a River. Subheading, Organizers of the 2024 Summer Games promised a waterway clean enough for Olympic swimmers and then Parisians to swim in. The job was bigger than anyone knew. By Catherine Porter. Paris, an electric delivery boat pushed up the Seine, past the former palaces and elegant museums, and under the low-slung stone, and metal bridges before turning at the Eiffel Tower and gliding to the riverbank. The captain, 
Arnouad Montoand, was tracing the planned path for the opening ceremony of next summer's Olympic Games and, over the last segment of its route, the course for Olympic swimmers. A key part of Paris's winning bid was not to host events just on the river, but, remarkably, in it. Quote, what a beautiful window onto Paris, end quote, Montan said from behind the wheel inside his cozy glass cabin, where he was protected from the pelting rain. Quote, but if there is a storm, all of it will be off, end quote. For years, workers across greater Paris have been implementing what is known as the swimming plan, an engineer's dream, involving thousands of new underground pipes, tanks, and pumps designed to prevent damaging bacteria from flowing into the Seine, particularly during storms. If successful, the plan will yield a river clean enough for Olympians and, later, citizens to swim in. Quote, do we have a 100% guarantee? The answer is no, end quote, said Pierre Rabadon, the deputy mayor heading up the city's Olympic plans, including the cleanup of the Seine in time for it to host two long-distance races and the swimming legs of the triathlon. Quote, if it rains for a week continually before the races, we know the quality of water, even with all the work that has been done, probably won't be excellent, end quote. But Rabadon also said there was no alternate plan. If the races must be postponed, organizers will simply wait a few days, test the water quality, and try again. Considered by many the most romantic river in the world, the Seine is also smelly, murky, and, after big Saturday nights, fringed with the filthy residue of partygoers. During huge rainstorms, 40 portholes dotting the river's paved banks gush with sewage. That's why many Parisians, even some working on the official swimming plan, look aghast at the idea of diving into the river. Quote, have you seen the Seine? End quote. Michael Rodriguez said from deep in a hole in the sidewalk, where he was connecting a new pipe to a house so it no longer oozed sewage into the river. Quote, I'm not interested, end quote. That was not always the case. During the first Olympic Games hosted by Paris in 1900, seven swimming events were held in the river. Even after swimming in it was banned in 1923, a year before the Games returned to the city, locals continued to dive off the Pont de Lena on hot summer days, the Eiffel Tower rising behind them as they cooled off in the water. But the river became more and more polluted with sewage and industrial waste. A study in the 1990s classified the stretch running through Paris as having one of the highest heavy metal levels in the world, according to a history of the river. Promises to return to those swimming days were made by Jacques Chirac, a former Paris mayor and later France's president, who vowed in 1990 that in three years, quote, I will swim in the Seine in front of witnesses to prove that the Seine is a clean river, end quote. That never happened. Quote, it was just nice words, end quote, said Jean-Marie Mochel, a hydrologist and professor at Sorbonne University, who has studied the Seine for three decades. Although many improvements to the river's water quality have been made, particularly through the modernization of sewage treatment plants, quote, there was no plan for swimming in the Seine before 2020, end quote, he said. The Olympics have changed that, not just by prompting the plan, but by inspiring a budget of 1.4 billion euros, 
more than $1.53 billion to implement it. One legacy of the games, the city's mayor, Anne Hidalgo, has promised, will be giving locals access to some 20 swimming areas along the Seine and its upstream tributary, the Marne, by the summer of 2025. Quote, the games were just an accelerator for the transformation and improvement of the water quality, end quote, said Rabadan, adding that the plan had brought together more than two dozen government bodies and water and sanitation agencies, as well as river and port authorities, which otherwise, quote, likely would not have committed, end quote. The aim of every agency involved is to make the water clean enough that levels of two indicator bacteria, E. coli and intestinal enterococci, are below the standard set by the European Bathing Directive. Olympic standards allow for slightly higher levels, given approval of a committee. Teams in France have been testing the Seine's water regularly since 2020. Last summer, about half of their samples met the target, but those were taken over a long stretch of the river and its tributary over three summer months. When workers tested the course of the planned Olympic events, the swimming park of the triathlon, and two 10-kilometer events for men and women, over two weeks in late summer, when the Olympics will take place, the results were 90% fair, meaning an Olympic committee would have to decide whether to proceed. Rabadan and other city staff members considered that promising, given that the bulk of the Olympic swimming plan has yet to be implemented. Quote, we are not purifying the Seine, end quote, said Samuel Colin Canavez, the city's lead engineer in charge of sewage projects, as he led a tour down a freshly built tunnel that stretches under the river. Quote, our approach is to keep untreated water from being dumped into the Seine, end quote. The 700-meter tunnel connects to a huge underground storage tank under construction between the Austerlitz train station and a 350-year-old hospital. Between them, they will have space to hold 13.2 million gallons, enough water to fill 20 Olympic pools. The tunnel and the tank are among five big engineering products being built to deal with storms, which now overwhelm Paris's antique sewer system, and more important, to funnel both sewage and rainwater. When those tunnels are overwhelmed by rainwater, they release everything, rain, sink, and toilet water, into the Seine. Quote, right now, that happens 12 times a year when it rains hard in the east part of the city, end quote, Colin Canavis said, while walking around the partially constructed tank. Once completed, the giant reservoir will hold that water during storms and then slowly reintroduce it back into the sewage system after the rain stops. Quote, our objective with this is to get that down to two times, end quote. That is the rainy weather strategy to keep sewage out of the Seine. The dry weather strategy involves another set of projects. Some are straightforward, like adding special treatments to two upstream sewage plants. The bigger plant, Seine Valentin, absorbs the wastewater of 2.5 million people, six miles southwest of Paris. Once small amounts of performic acid are introduced to its discharge in June, the levels of harmful fecal bacteria will be cut by 100 times, said Vincent Rocher, director of innovation at the Greater Paris Sanitation Authority. Others are smaller and more personal, like the teams going door to door in six suburban areas of Paris, 
trying to persuade more than 20,000 homeowners to allow workers to dig up their pipes and reconnect them properly to the sewer system. That's how many homes are believed to send their wastewater into the Seine or the Marne. Quote, house by house, end quote, said Claire Costell, who leads the project in the region just southeast of Paris. Quote, there is no other way to do it, end quote. Here, there are two separate underground systems of tunnels, one just for sewage and another reserved for rainwater. In many cases, though, builders connected sewage pipes to the rainwater system. In others, like on the small island of Fanek, houses were built to dump their sewage directly into the Marne. The only way to figure out which houses have bad connections, Costell said, is to check their pipes. Then, her team tries to persuade the homeowners to allow them to fix the error. Even though the teams are able to offer grants of 6,000 euros that often cover the renovation costs, many homeowners refuse. By last March, only about 5,000 had accepted, according to a city report. Quote, it's delicate, end quote, Costell explained. Quote, we can't force them to open their doors, end quote. Her team has been most successful. It has built a new sewer line and pumping system for the 40 houses on Fanuc. The selling point for many residents on Fanuc and in nearby towns was the Olympic legacy. Quote, I learned to swim as a child in the Marne, end quote, said Jean-Louis Bourgeois, 70, standing outside his brick house in Le Perrault-Sarmarne one morning after workers labored to complete the sewer system. Quote, I would be very happy to swim again there, end quote. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Inside the Paris city limits, it's not houses workers are targeting, but boats. Some 170 are moored along the banks of the Seine upstream of the Olympic sites. Until recently, almost all dumped their sewage directly into the river. In 2018, the city declared that all boats needed to be connected to the city's sewage system, and the Port Authority began the expensive process of installing sewage connections and pumps in the ports that did not have them. Water dwellers were given two years to put in coupling wastewater collection systems in their boats. To date, only around half have done the work, according to city employees. Many boat owners have complained that they are being unfairly targeted. Unlike their terrestrial neighbors, they were not offered a choice, and retrofitting old boats can cost as much as 25,000 euros, five times what the government offers in grants. Quote, do you think the boat park 30 kilometers from Paris will be connecting to a wastewater system? End quote, said Hervé Lavoli, who lives on a retrofitted 1937 barge moored near a pedestrian bridge in the heart of Paris. Quote, they make noise on all this for the 8 p.m. news, so they look like they are doing a lot, but it's ridiculous, end quote. Nicolas Londinsky, the director of water and sewage systems in Paris, acknowledges that the boat's pollution is comparatively small, but says it can make the difference between a passing water quality test at a nearby swim area and failing one. Quote, if we really want to improve the water quality, we have to do everything, end quote, he said. And despite his criticisms, Lavoli said he liked the idea of swimming in the Seine. Each night, as he brushes his teeth in his boat's bathroom, 
He looks out at a river, sparkling beneath the city's lights. He is continually astonished by its beauty. Quote, if we have the chance to show the world what is the same and offer this view of Paris, end quote, he said, quote, it's a great idea, end quote. Heading, what's the deal with adulthood? 25 years later, Seinfeld feels revelatory. Subheading, the show about nothing ended in May 1998. But in an era where priorities are being reevaluated, the sitcom has taken on new relevance. By Maya Salam. Early in the pandemic, I developed a strange habit. Every night, I'd slip my phone under my pillow and listen to an episode, or six, of Seinfeld through a few inches of polyfill stuffing. Though for anyone who knows me, that inclination probably tracks. I started watching Seinfeld when it debuted on NBC in 1989 and never stopped, watching and rewatching every episode relentlessly on various platforms, reading the scripts in my free time, and annoyingly inserting quotes into conversation at every chance. When the show concluded 25 years ago on Sunday, just days before I graduated from high school, I and my fellow young Seinfeld aficionados gathered in front of the TV to say goodbye to Jerry, Elaine, George, Kramer, and the many indelible side characters like Yev Kassem, the soup Nazi, and Maria Penny, the Virgin, who denounced them in a courtroom in the show's polarizing finale. It was technically the end of an era, but for me, it was only the beginning of what would go on to inform every phase of my life. As it turns out, my strange pillow habit did more than amuse and calm me while I lay sleepless during a profoundly stressful time. In those hours, I started to think about the show differently. Why, as the fabric of society seemed to be fraying, did it seem so prescient? Why did it seem like the four friends who gleefully, proudly, deftly flouted societal conventions and the rules of traditional adulthood had long ago tapped into some fundamental truths that, because of the pandemic's disruptions, many were re-examining. For the somehow uninitiated, Seinfeld, created by Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David, stars Seinfeld as a fictionalized version of himself and follows his shenanigans with his three closest friends, his childhood buddy, George Costanza, Jason Alexander, his former girlfriend turned pal, Elaine Bennis, Julia Louise Dreyfus, and his oddball neighbor, Kramer, Michael Richards. It is regarded as one of the greatest shows of all time. It has consistently been framed as a comedy about four terrible people, with good reason. Jerry and his fellow misfits lied, cheated, and stole. They were petty and shallow. They created a framework for bad sitcom characters that shows like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia would embrace with great relish and success. But they also presented an irreverent version of adulthood that I had never seen on TV or in life. A playful yet sophisticated world where grown-ups joked and laughed together and did not take themselves too seriously, even when everyone around them was being very serious indeed. Most important, they openly mocked the notion that professional success, marriage, and parenthood were the cornerstones of existence. For me, a serious child surrounded by serious adults, a child who was ostracized by those unable to categorize me, and who knew early that established paths to fulfillment would not apply, this revealed loads of possibilities. Seinfeld outright questioned these constructs. In one episode, 
when Jerry and George are compelled to wonder whether they need to grow up. Jerry gets an explosive rebuke from Kramer. What are you thinking about, Jerry? Marriage? Family? They're prisons. Mad-made prisons. You're doing time. In another, when George bemoans an awkward office interaction, Jerry, self-satisfied, responds, I've never had a job. Parentheses. In a 1993 interview with Charlie Rose, Seinfeld said one benefit of being a comic was the ability to reject many facets of ordinary life. Quote, you just don't feel part of it, and that's a good thing, end quote, end parentheses. This refusenik sensibility is threaded through the entire series, and any attempt by the characters to sublimate themselves to social norms fizzled quickly and often in grand fashion. Particularly professionally, where opportunities and aspirations came and went, Kramer's outlandish business ventures, Elaine's fitful career in publishing, George's corporate self-sabotage, even Jerry's hope in the show's most meta-subplot to parlay his stand-up career into a successful sitcom. Some of the funniest scenarios specifically skewered the absurdities of office jobs. In one episode, Kramer is mistaken for an employee after using a company's bathroom and then keeps returning as if he works there. Wearing a suit and swinging a briefcase that contained nothing but crackers, he was a kid playing office, an imposter without imposter syndrome. Elaine's professional prospects were subject to the whims of unreasonable, eccentric bosses, but her identity was never defined by her career. Instead, her jobs and superiors acted as foils for her personality to flourish. But crucially, after each of their many failures, the characters largely ended up just as they were before, fine, unbothered, unscathed, and rarely dejected for long. This certainly had a precedent rooted in reality. When Terry Gross asked David in 1992 if the show's early low ratings were demoralizing, he responded, quote, if the show got canceled, it didn't make a difference to either one of us, end quote. When it came to personal values, Seinfeld offered a biting departure from the family sitcoms that came before it, like The Cosby Show and Growing Pains, which were based in the same accepted aspirations as the real world. Other contemporary series focused on friendships, Friends, Living Single, Will and Grace, still predominantly followed a common trajectory, with career, relationship, and family goals a driving force that often ramped up as the shows neared their ends. Instead of relying on the common late-season fallback of someone getting pregnant and having a baby, Seinfeld did the opposite, devoting storylines to diaphragms, the Today Sponge, and condoms. Despite the nihilism suggested by its no-hugging, no-learning motto, and by much of the character's behavior, Seinfeld did exhibit a worldview and priorities that were refreshing, and for me, far more aspirational and inspirational. Not despite the fact that these were flawed people uninterested in perfection, but because of it. Even with their abundant neuroses, they lived in the present, sought fun, and were loyal to the tight-knit, pretense-free friendships at the show's heart, the kind where your people know your bad parts and love you anyways. Today, as cracks in the facade of hustle culture continue to spread, as a growing library of books and articles promote the value of rest and fun, as more people delay or forego marriage or children, real life seems to be catching up with Seinfeld. Even from a less rosy perspective, 
with the realization that long-held images of adulthood may not be as attainable as before, the show has taken on a fresh relatability, offering new reasons for a little self-deprecating humor. At the end of the series finale, which was watched by a now unimaginable audience of 76 million people, the gang winds up in jail after that trial in which a parade of character witnesses, many of them wronged by the defendants over nine seasons, attest to their unethical behavior. Parentheses. For the record, I struggled with the episode, like I do with many sitcom finales, for veering too far from the show's distinct vibe, the primary source of my affection. End parentheses. But if you look at it from a different angle and put some of the silliness aside, you might glean a metaphor about those who don't stick to the script, choosing instead to shamelessly indulge themselves in a culture that rarely appreciates indulgence without guilt. Theirs was a cell for people who declined to opt in, but at least they had each other. In a way, my thinking this deeply about it might run antithetical to the spirit of Seinfeld, famously known as a show about nothing. Well, okay. In that case, yada yada yada, it turned out to be about pretty much everything. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the May 12, 2023 issue of the New York Times. Your reader has been Jack Harity. Thank you for listening.